0: If you and me know. Miller coming.
1: This is Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast devoted to the TV we're obsessed with. And right now, that's The Expanse. I'm Jonathan Gitnan, and this week we've got an interview with award-winning sci-fi author Cameron Hurley, where we talk about the show, space opera in general, the depiction of biotech in science fiction, and some of the politics of The Expanse. But first, let's have a quick recap of episode four. Come on, Pampa. Fresh air. As you'll remember, last week we saw Miller get his groove back and come up with a way to take out Eros, the space station that's currently being used as a test tube to see what happens if you feed 100,000 people to the proto molecule. This week we get to see the curtain pulled back on the subterfuge happening on Earth. Christian Avasarala, the smartest woman in the UN, knows that oligarch industrialist Jules-Pierre Mao is the man behind Protogen. She also knows that Ehrenreich is Mao's stooge within the UN, and their plot looks like its days are numbered. Today,
0: UN sources confirm that evidence aboard the ship has been conclusively linked to Protogen
1: Corporation, a subsidiary of Mao Kukowski Mercantile. Meanwhile, out in space, Miller's plan takes shape. Holden might still be furious with Miller for the way he handled the mad Dr. Dresden, but with more at stake than just his principles, he and the crew of the Rosinante set out for Eros. So too does Detective Miller who has to go out for his very first spacewalk, along with his OPA buddies and some nukes. Why are you doing this? I uh, you know, I've never done a spacewalk before and the kid here says it's better than sex. I don't know if he can really make that comparison. Also along for the ride to Eros is the Navu, the three kilometer long generation ship the Mormons were planning to send to Tau Ceti. This has been stolen by the OPA, Few lots of angry Mormons, and a wonderful scene where the ship's engines fire into life, slagging the construction docks in the process. You were meant to go to a new sun. Commence launch sequence. The gang arrive at Eros to find out they're not the only visitors.
0: This area is under strict quarantine. Who are you and what are you doing here? I'm a doctor.
1: This requires Holden to enforce a quarantine at the station. As a result of Holden's actions, Miller is left trapped on the infected rock, with only a few minutes of air left in his suit and a malfunctioning nuke that needs babysitting. So, we dead. We? Go. Get back to the ship. That should spell curtains for our hangdog space detective, but as we'll see in the final scene, the protomolecule has some tricks up its bioengineered sleeves, and the laws of physics mean nothing to this puppy. But that's enough from me. Now let's hear from Cameron Hurley. Well, thanks very much for agreeing to talk to me today for our podcast. Oh, Um, absolutely. Yeah. So The Expanse, evidently a topic that you know intimately. How are you enjoying it?
0: I love the show. It's so funny. I couldn't get into the books for various reasons. Mm -hmm. But the show itself, it brings back, you know, that old school sense of wonder. Hey, science, science. Yeah. That I really enjoyed, uh, you know, with with the kind of the space opera growing up. So I'm, I'm enjoying it, you know, and I know I've met, you know, Daniel and Ty. And so it's it's always fun also watching a show that you're like, oh, I know those guys. That's cool. <laughs> so that's really fun. That is- but yeah, it's been really interesting to watch. And especially it's so funny. I just started season two. And so watching it kind of after like the new like political you know reality yep. uh, here in America where I've just been like you like you look at it a little differently and it, it seems incredibly more hopeful even though it's all about war and it seems incredibly hopeful because it, it posits that there is a future where we go to space
1: we so. yeah, but, that we actually make it out make exactly. it to the solar system <laughs> which right now I think probably, people would probably only give you even odds on
0: toss of a coin at this point yeah so it's actually really uh, a lot of fun and it's especially fun to watch something that is so carefully committed to being a hard SF show right <laughs> I think some of those shots like I think at one point Holden he ends up pushing someone away so that he can go forward it's it's an interesting there's a physics thing going on because of gravity and I was like oh my god like you look at them, there are things that you don't even think of. And when Miller's pouring the liquor into the glass and it like bends mm-hmm. into a curve because of gravity, and then there's the sparrow that only has to beat its wings, you know, intermittently because of the low gravity. So there's those little things where sort they're of paying attention to the details of it mm-hmm. that I really appreciate because I geek out about world building. So yeah, um, I love
1: it. That's something I think the depth of the world building in this. I mean, you mm-hmm. can tell Ty started working on it as a originally as an MMO back around mm-hmm. two thousand one. Yep. And you can tell that there's fifteen years of kind of mm-hmm. background has gone into this and the the world is so fleshed out and things like you said like the bird on one of the space stations kind of floating in midair just kind of gently flapping its wings I think the, the way that they can tell some of the story visually to kind mm-hmm. of get that across, I think is fantastic.
0: Yeah, the translation—it's always interesting to watch the translation of a book into film mm-hmm. because it's so easy to do horribly wrong. Yep, um, they're just totally different mediums. So to watch them, you know, take that story and you know, obviously, and again, working with with folks who also know what the hell they're doing is just is just really gratifying. Like, hey, there's this in incredible thing that was like four chapters that we can do with here's this image here's a couple images mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you're know, you like wow, that's amazing uh, but you have to start thinking like totally differently so yeah so it's really really gratifying to kind of watch that become so successful for sure
1: it's a bit like the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy which mm-hmm. kind of also exists in many different formats you know you have the books you have the radio stuff mm-hmm. you have the tv show you have the movie and they're all kind of the same sort of general story but told in different ways with mm-hmm. different mediums you know obviously the tone of the expanse is very different but so what drew you to space opera in the first place?
0: I've always loved space opera. My uh, The first thing I wanted to do was be an astronaut. That was like one of my first as a kid. And then uh, I was one of those ones who, you know, very early remembers the Challenger blowing up. That was one of my early, you know, things. And I was like, OK, maybe, maybe not, not space. But it certainly captured my imagination. I also loved, you know, astronomy and things like that, just because it's that unknowable thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like human beings, we are so optimized for understanding Earth and the things that you <laughs> Earth has and whatever, but it's like you start, you get even, you know, beyond the atmosphere and we start to go, how the hell does this work? That can't even be true. I mean, I was watching this wonderful thing about the formations of galaxies in the solar system and all these new theories that they have. And they're like, these are things going on in these crazy, you know, star systems that we can see now that we didn't even know were possible. Like, we didn't even conceive of them. I mean, if you're really looking for the fantastic and the unknowable, like space is where it's at. That's certainly what, what drew me to that particular medium. I think I read The Stars My Destination and was like blown away by it. There was uh, quite a few, you know, that I really obviously I was a huge Star Trek fan. And also I love this idea and they explored this a lot in The Expanse. And that's why I, I love the show also is... Who would we be in space, right? Like if you mm-hmm. take humanity away from Earth, you know, who are we? Are we still fighting the same petty battles? How are our societies different? How do we resolve things? How' the cultures change? Mm-hmm. And I love the way that they that they explore that in that show. So yeah,
1: dealing with social disparities in a mm-hmm. in a kind of separate in a different context, than the one that we understand here on Earth, you know, because everyone has. Access to oxygen, one of the few things that even repressive regimes can't deprive you of. <laughs> but, you know, obviously, if you live in a spaceship somewhere in the belt or, a you know, a small space station, you can't take any of that for granted. Mm-hmm. The way that, you know, Belter kids grow up and, you know, maintaining your spacesuit and, you know, being hyper vigilant about doing maintenance all the time because mm-hmm. you know the slightest screw up will kill you and your entire family and you know the way that that changes how you look at the world or look at life i guess is-
0: i love the trash talking that the martians do about the earthers mm-hmm. right like there's there's so much trash of just and then and it does and i love how they kind of get as a you know as a writer i love how they get across again those those differences right in the spacesuit stuff these differences between cultures it with just like their snark and what they you know, turn their noses up at and how, oh, gosh, you guys are so weak. You'd never have to worry about oxygen or water, you know, <laughs> Right. <laughs> and that's what makes you weak. Not anything. Yeah, I love those. You can convey so much information with just like this offhand banter. Yeah, for sure.
1: That's something I've been thinking. Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy. I mean, that's mm-hmm. something you, you got from that as well. And, mm-hmm. and I guess also Seven Eves and then An Aurora mm-hmm. yep. You know, again recently. The... We seem to be in a golden age for, we are. for Belter yeah. fiction.
0: I think. <laughs> Yes, you know it was funny because my editor came to me like uh, I think it was the end of it was in 2013, mm-hmm. and he actually said, "Do you have a space opera?" Because he's like, "Space opera is the next big thing. Do you have it?" And I had a proposal, and so that ended up being the Stars or Legion. But it was just like he saw. He was like, "The Guardians of the Galaxy is coming out, doing really well. There had already been talk about rebooting Star Trek." And he said, "I really think this is the next big thing." Um, and yeah, The Expanse, man, that thing came out, and they did it so well, and it was so exceptionally done. I think yet yeah, we really are. We're we're seeing a real golden age like you said it's like this resurgence in the future which is great because we really need it especially right now we just really need a future
1: yes yes, we do where we're at in the tv show obviously the books have gone along much further from there and i do you think we've actually got to the space opera part of the expanse yet because i feel like we're still just in the solar system at this point you know maybe Mm -hmm. we haven't quite actually kind of crossed that boundary into that I'm gonna have to say the expansive you know kind of (laughs) universe of Mm. of different worlds all over the place which will be coming but I'm not sure even you know halfway through season two I don't think we're quite there yet
0: yeah that's just a really good question it's like at what point does it become a space opera do you have to cross into a different solar system Mm -hmm. for it to be categorized but see to me that's that's also like splitting hairs right right? it's like oh well is it hard SF or soft SF or military SF or space opera Uh, and it was something Ty had said about, uh, I think I I watched something that they were, they were doing about the expanse where he said, you know, we wanted this idea of something that just reminded you of like how large things are and how big they are. And he's like, so we have the expanse. And it does, it needs like space number just needs to remind you, even if it's only set in, Oh, here's a few worlds or even our solar system. I feel like if it just reminds you, like we are these tiny insignificant things in this huge, expansive vacuum that is designed to kill us Mm -hmm. that we are not optimized for. I feel like any time you leave the planet and you've got like Mars and uh, moon colonies even, I would even call that you could do space opera. I love, again, the ideas, especially once you have like these separate societies, right, Mm -hmm. on Mars and the moon. Again, I love the whole separateness of Mars. I think that it's just a matter of when you look at space opera, it is how different are the societies, right? How separate have they become from the Earth? Have they become their own thing? because um, that to me is when space opera gets really exciting right so
1: i think my introduction to it was i don't know if you've ever read a harry harrison book called star Smashers of the galaxy rangers which, oh, is, I have. which is an ex- extremely <laughs> cheesy title and it's uh, the book is very tongue-in-cheek it was radio four which is like the uk's version of npr serialized <laughs> it back in 1986 so around the same time as challenger and i remember listening to it back then and kind of rushed out bought the book read it and that was game over for me from that point but the stories you can tell you know, when you have such a broad universe to paint them in, I think does it a lot for me. So you have a new book out. I do, which I have started reading. I'm only on chapter four, but oh, okay. there's um, so no
0: spoilers either for you.
1: But one of the things I think is is interesting is so so in your book, which is set much further in the future, mm-hmm. the technology there it's all kind of bio based, right? It's mm-hmm. like, biotech is the wrong word, but it's all sort of biological, and we're going to start to see a lot more of that in the expanse, obviously with the proto molecule. So I was just wondering to get your thoughts maybe on that kind of field and, and how it's emerging and, and maybe where you got some of the ideas for your book as you were writing it.
0: Sure. You know, it's really interesting. I was at a, up at Confusion, uh, which is a convention up in Detroit, and I was on a, a panel about uh, military science fiction and how technology is going to change conflict in the future. And I was on it with uh, Toby Buckle, Tobias Buckell. You know, it was funny. We were talking about, yeah, like the emergence of biotechnology. Karen Burnham was also on there. and She's she, she does science. Let's just put it that way. She does science. People wanted to know about like power armor and rail guns. And we were like, you know, we're kind of in a different timeline now. Like we're doing that. We're much more like the fields as far as that we're looking at are like drone based our organic things are, you know, so your power suit would be more like some organic, like fleshy thing or something that was just a little bit easier to kind of take care of. Again, you're looking at, you know, grit and sand and crazy conditions. You want something that can actually live in space. And mm-hmm. we have organisms that can actually live in space now. So, hey, why don't we engineer those so that they, can you know serve all these different purposes so yeah I did I did a ton of research into things that we're doing now and, and extrapolating from that obviously you know we've seen in plenty of other shows stuff done with organic technology a little bit in Babylon 5 a little bit in farscape and all of that. But I really took that to the next level. And it was really thinking about that Kim Stanley Robinson and Aurora, Mm -hmm. where uh, he wrote an amazing essay for Boing Boing about, you know, our generation ships will sink, which was basically like, hey, if we want to achieve interstellar travel, we have a lot of problems. We're not again, we're not optimized for space. We Mm -hmm. are optimized for Earth. We are intrinsically tied to the earth. We have all this bacteria, these micro, these things that are living within us and that we are dependent upon that we don't understand. And if we remove ourselves from the earth, we will die. And I love this idea where I was like, okay, challenge accepted. (laughs) I was like, well, what if we, you know, basically made, again, an organic world that we are absolutely completely tied to and that we interacted with and that we were just another part of. And that, again, maybe that generation ship would end up falling onto another planet and colonizing it right with its bacteria and its organics and all of those things and it would terraform itself and us as well like we would be changed as well in this new environment and I love this idea of thinking beyond this near future to this incredibly far future tech and it was funny because yeah we, we were talking about all this organic technology and the problems and why we can't have power armor probably and and as soon as we ended the the thing like okay open up to questions like the first questions were power armor and rail guns <laughs> so we're like if no you, really we do, and Toby hands me this note, and he says, "Man, like no matter what the future looks like, we can't get away from our fetishes, right? Yep. Our science fiction fetishes." And I was like, "Yeah, right! Like even though we are on clearly like this kind of different path, we have this 1950s idea of what the future is going to be. And even me, right? Because season two of The Expanse is they're in power armor, yep, was and about, me my husband and they, like and ah, they, power they're, armor, they're... Yay! Yes, I hear the railgun. So I'm like, oh, my gosh. So we still love it, right? Because it's it's intrinsically part of our understanding of science fiction and how we grew up with science fiction, even though it's not necessarily going to become a part of our future, at least not, again, the timeline we're on. But who knows? It changes every day. So, yeah, so that's what got me really interested in. It was just kind of looking at, hey, what are we doing now and what does the future look like from point in time Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that you know we we get a lot of science fiction still that says okay Let's just keep extrapolating from a 1950s future. And we really can't, you know, I mean, you can do that. You can do whatever you want. But I really love this stuff that says, hey, what's at the cutting edge now? And what's at the leading edge now? And and, and how are things going to be? Right. And I really do see, you know, again, we're looking at antibiotic resistant bacteria. We're looking at things, uh, these ideas. Uh, Jeff Ryman has done a lot of amazing books where this idea where like viruses teach you how new languages and mm-hmm. things, like you, know, you get viruses, you know. And I love that idea of you using a virus as like a packet to, you know, change uh, your brain and what your brain knows and things. So yeah, that's really kind of the direction that I'm seeing. And so that's really what I I wanted to explore in my own book,
1: for sure. Is is it fair to say that The the Stars of Legion, is it fair to describe that as a sort of post-scarcity science fiction, closer to the Ian M. Banks' Culture series, Mm -hmm. uh, compared to The Expanse, you know, where getting enough hydrogen and oxygen is still much more of a problem and you know it's more engineering rather than bioengineering to take care of things and you can't just you know program some cells to grow something yeah
0: i think that's fair uh and that in fact my editor had compared it to the
1: culture novels so i'm only f- four chapters in but yep. but that's uh, the feeling i got was you know it yep. kind of fits alongside that kind of description of the future
0: well and to me again i think which this is good company to be in i think totally right Ian banks i'll take it but to me it's like also I think like the difference is cuz I'm talking to the agent now about a book that's possibly going to be a near future book. You got to think also, I mean if you're doing a show like the expanse where you're a few hundred years in the future or a hundred years in the future, it's way different than the stars or legion or, you know, the culture where you're talking about thousands of mm-hmm. years, right? Like the further out you get in time the more alien things should look, yeah. right? And so – which I think that should be the way it is, um, is that, yeah, the farther out we get, the more alien things are. Certainly there are books that have done that differently. Ada Palmer came out with an amazing book called Two Like Lightning where she posited that this future was sort of aping the sensibilities of like the 17th century. It was, it was really fascinating. Kind of that they looked to the past to mm-hmm. make the future, which was interesting. You know, I mean, yeah, if you want to do – You know, near future, you're going to have to deal with those big engineering problems. If you're dealing with far future, the problems are just very, very different. Right.
1: So. The other side of the coin is, uh, I don't know if you see, there's a movie called Space Station 79 with Liv Tyler and, I can't remember who the other actor is, it's sci-fi film set on a space station, but as the name suggests it's kind of extrapolating the future out from 1979. Yeah. So it's kind of you know, that old Battlestar Galactica yeah. style sci-fi, except everyone smokes in space, because obviously, you know, it's the obviously, it's the 1970s, yeah. so you can get away with that. <laughs> which I thought was uh, an in- interesting. It's worth checking out, I think. Definitely. So, yeah, I don't know how many people have ever seen it, but I, <laughs> (laughs) I don't think think it ever made the fences.
0: It has a 4.9 out of 10. So it should be really good. yeah. 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 You know, the one that actually gave me the idea to go with an amnesiac in space, even though I hate that trope, was Pandorum. Uh, I don't know if you ever seen I love that show that was a really great way to kind of use the amnesiac in space and here's how things change on a a starship that sort of like stuff gets loose and goes crazy and I really I really liked that idea that was a cool show amnesia is so difficult um, because it's like it's one of those tropes and I I I was talking to my agent about this recently where I said you know I hate that trope I hate every book that does and then I woke up in a white room (laughs) you know it's like the laziest world building ever but Here was the thing where it's like, I write very weird science fiction and fantasy where the worlds are, again, I love the worlds are really different, like societies are different, things are crazy. And my editor had said, he said, you know, we need to find a way to overcome the gauntlet. And the gauntlet is those first 50 pages, right? We are understanding the world and how things work and what's different and what's the same. And I said, you know, I understand now why Le Guin did the thing where, oh, it's someone from outside of the system who's going to be our, you know, we will ride on their shoulder and and basically see it from the outsider's perspective. And I didn't want to do an outsider's perspective. And so I did the amnesiac because it was the only way I could think that I could ease people into how freaking weird (laughs) the future would be, you know? So,
1: As a storytelling technique, I guess you have to have some way of bringing the reader up to speed without without giving them like a source book to study first. So here <laughs> exactly. you go. Here's all the world building I've done. Now now, now, I can tell you the story. Yes. <laughs> I guess one of the other things I, I had on the list to, to talk about maybe is, is, you know, some of the politics of The Expanse. And so I was wondering, you know, what, what your take was on, you know, you have Earth and various factions working in the UN, you know, with this shadowy conspiracy from mm-hmm. Jules Pierre Mao. You know, you've got the relationship between Earth and Mars. Um, and then mm-hmm. obviously, you know, the Belters. Is that an aspect of the story? that also interests you
0: yeah totally I love it because again it it kind of takes this idea of what people are expendable right Mm -hmm. Uh, it's something you know especially especially in the United States you know the history of who really does count as people Mm -hmm. is a is a huge uh, thing and throughout history really but I mean uh, my favorite was I was walking through I think it was the British Museum and someone said you know Athens was uh, the first democracy albeit one that did not include Immigrants, women, or slaves. And I'm like, really? I don't know that that's really a democracy. But America has the same thing. Oh, yeah, we were democracy. Oh, yeah, except that only uh, rich white landholders could, you know. So it's an ongoing problem is who is people? Who is a citizen? Who counts? And it's all about consolidating power. Mm -hmm. And so to watch that pushed out onto, again, that sort of solar system the expanse into the solar system is really fascinating and again I, and i love the reasons. i mean they all have good reasons to be upset at each other yep. there's a real resource scramble there are again they, they're these people a lot of people again in the belt um and mars i can understand you, you feel like you're exploited and that you are fighting some you know these rich people who are you know incredibly who you feel are incredibly weak And they all have absolutely legitimate grievances, which uh, my favorite scene, I just did um, first episode of season two. And there's a great scene in the war room of them. You know, should we basically should we, you know, without not real spoilers, but, you know, should we strike or should we not? And it's a wonderful scene of just the different angles that people have and the different arguments that they make to try and get their way and how they're sharing information or not sharing information and how one guy finally just resigns. Mm -hmm. And it was a great scene because I love that it acknowledges the messiness that are that is humans right you know there's no like code to say oh and if I do this and this this will happen it's like humans are very messy and very complicated and the things that we do one of the things again that I love all the time is you go okay who's going to shoot this person? <laughs> who's going to shoot this guy unexpectedly because they're really pissed off because people do things that are so, that so are not according so, to the script, right?
1: So, so, so I think you're, you're referring to when Miller decides, yes. you know, Dresden's <laughs> going to get away with it. I guess you haven't seen episode three yet. I haven't seen three season. yet. That deals with, I mean, that's the, run, the one that ran this week as we're speaking. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a scene where, um, where Miller's talking to Fred Johnson, who's, who's the, mm. the OPA chief. You know, obviously Holden's Extremely pissed off that Miller shot Dresden mm-hmm. without a trial, and Fred Johnson wasn't terribly happy about it either. But but Miller says to him, you know, along the lines of, you know, I, I didn't shoot him because he was crazy. I shot him because he was making sense. Yeah. You know, because you could see that he was going to get away with it. And mm-hmm. um, if you, you bring him to justice, he's going to, you know, he'll make a deal.
0: Yep. There's too much power, right? There's yep. too much, which again, it is very much a wish fulfillment fantasy. Like, because in the real world, they're making deals now, right? Yep.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Look at World so. War Two and Operation Paperclip. Yeah. The way we, oh we hoovered up Nazi scientists after the war.
0: Yeah. In yeah. fact, we wouldn't what have got
1: to the moon without them.
0: It. It's very satisfying in that way because you know that most of the time they do make a deal. Yeah. Because they've got the weapon, you know?
1: Another interesting thing, I think, is the dynamic between Holden and Miller. Holden is certainly in the first series, much more idealistic. He thinks, well, if I just, you know, I'm going to record these messages and just send them out to the entire system and people can see what's going on. And then after the battle on Thoth Station, you know, mm-hmm. Holden is particularly, you'll see this in episode three. You know, he's kind of adrift really and doesn't know why they've done what they've done. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, Miller, who seems to have been, you know, kind of at the end of his career and he was, you know, the crappy cop that got saddled with the partners no one else mm-hmm. wanted to work with, but he seems to find his purpose in this and, and, you know, realize that he has a role to play. And I like the kind of ch- the changing dynamic between those two and maybe the, the differences in their character growth. I think it's been quite interesting. Oh,
0: totally. It was very interesting. It was very satisfying at the end of season one when they finally got together, mm-hmm. right? Where you're just like, okay, what's going to happen now, right? You're immediately, I oh, always loved, you know, season one I loved Holden just because, and Ty explained it, Holden is like having, it shows you what a pain in the ass it is to have a paladin in your party. I mm-hmm. guess. <laughs> Because he tries, he like tries to make all the good decisions and do the right thing. And it like always backfires. And I, I love it. I love that always backfires. because as soon as he has a plan toward the end of the first season, you're just like, oh, this is going to go so bad because <laughs> it sounds so good and he's going to screw it up. So, yeah, they are very different as far as, yeah, their whole entire approach to the world. And I do love, yeah, because, you you know, you're, you're right. Like you start to see the shift in season two of like, OK, how are they going to both be finding their kind of new place in the world? And you know what it is? Okay, And I know it's the election, uh, you know, changes are all of our views of everything. But it is like, again, what happened changed their view of their world, Mm -hmm. right? Like it changed their view of the world and what was going on in it and their place in it. And I loved that. And I I feel like they all went through that shift right after it happened. You see it in season two of them all going, oh, the world is different. There is big stuff happening that we had no idea about. Right. Um, And so that's yeah, that's been really satisfying.
1: And this idea, which I think a lot of people are waking up to here which is you know if you see bad things happening and it's in your power to act and to stop Mm -hmm. them you know Mm -hmm. the moral responsibility that you have to do that even if that wasn't exactly what you had planned for your life you know you know (laughs) your future's on hold now yeah (laughs) for the greater good (laughs) Mm Hmm. yep so do you have Mm -hmm. a favorite character in the show
0: i do i do uh absolutely avasarala yep she is my favorite because I I write brutal kick-ass heroines and so I'm sure everyone was like oh Draper you're gonna love Don Draper and she's great I love Draper but honestly Avsarala has is that old experienced person who has so much more to lose who knows what they've given up who understands the betrayals that Mm -hmm. they are making and does them anyway because they believe they're doing the right thing I love that about her and how she's just very kick-ass she's
1: probably my favorite character in the books I think part of that we'll get to see more of this now because apparently sci-fi changed their Standards recently, so mm. they can have a lot more swearing and nudity. Oh, good. Table. So, in the books, yeah. she has like the filthiest mouth ever. And it's, it's one of the ways that she <laughs> uses to like disarm her political opponents is, you know, just using the most outrageous language in meetings, <laughs> which I think we're going to start to see more of. You know, I think that's starting to creep through. But yeah, this senior UN politician who swears like a sailor, I think it's just (laughs) I'd love that.
0: Yeah. Again, I I tried to read the first book and they had said, yeah, like she shows up like really late in the first Um, book or or second? Maybe.
1: Yeah. Maybe not even in the first book.
0: Yeah. And I was like, man, I might have stuck around. I might have finished the first one if she had been it. So I was really glad to hear. I was really glad they bumped her up Mm -hmm. um, into the first season because I did feel like that added that older gravitas that that there's higher there's things going on at that higher level and there's deeper again that the enigma within the labyrinth you know so i i felt that was a really great creative decision for sure
1: yeah i think it's one of the advantages i guess filming the show once they have so many books and novellas kind of already written is the ability to go and take stories and ideas from later on and insert them earlier into the story as a way of showing the world mm-hmm. the expanse the complete world right, right. yep yeah yep. you know
0: it's so funny in season two i started to get and you know it was the it was the cheese scene it was them them talking about eating lasagna and talking about stealing cheese mm-hmm. and i felt i got like a firefly vibe and i realized it was like yes. fulfilling this yeah yep. was fulfilling this need in my heart for firefly this ragtag band of people who should not have Anything to do with each other, who are nonetheless bound together in this thing that's bigger than them, and they still keep going despite the odds, mm-hmm. right? And I was like, oh, that's the little emotional thing that's getting me with this story. So this sort of the yeah.
1: family meals around the table on the spaceship. <laughs> There's also another sci-fi show which I, I'm a fan of um, called Dark mm-hmm. Matter. Oh, which actually yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if you've seen this in fact it, i've it, seen a
0: few of them so but, so no. yeah
1: it, in fact it even touches on on the amnesia thing because you have these six strangers yes. wake yes. up on this spaceship yes. and none yes. of them know who they are and then it, it progresses from there and, and that also again there's that firefly vibe of you know a family or you know a tribe whatever you want to call it you know out in space on their own that these days just seems quite appealing is there anything maybe we didn't touch on that you feel mm. you you know we need we need to discuss
0: more and more I'm i'm just really excited to see TV like this. Again, there's so many different mediums, uh, as far as like for, for new content on TV. And I know a lot of us, uh, writers have been getting calls and it was really uh, gratifying to find out that, you know, the guys had, had gotten the show, uh, actually made and it was good. Right. <laughs>
1: like, Cause I guess that so opens so the door for everyone else.
0: So exactly. Yeah. And then people go, Oh, that worked out really well. You know, like having the writers like actually have inputs. I'm just really grateful that they're, they were willing to take a, risk on an original show the fact
1: that dan and ty are so involved in writing the show is that quite a big thing in the community
0: what usually happens is you know yeah like a producer calls us and says i want to option your thing and you go okay and they give you some money not as much as you'd think they give you a little money and then they run off and they try and do something with it and like if you aren't absolutely insistent um yeah like that's pretty much all <laughs> that's pretty much all there is so it was really interesting to kind of hear their journey where they were actually brought i think Ty was talking about it on twitter about they were brought into pitch meetings mm-hmm. which again i think Scalzi might do that i don't know but like there are very few that that actually happens to usually they come to you and they're just like hey we'll give you this amount of money and we'll see you later and then you get a ticket to the premiere and you're like oh dear god what was that (laughs) that's usually what it is Mm -hmm. so I think everybody's just really thrilled that it is such a great show I'm excited again I'm excited for you know it's it's part of the space opera again this new renaissance I think of space opera I'm excited for the new Star Trek I'm excited for other shows that I think again as you said like it now it opens the door for some other shows
1: Mm -hmm. so for sure well Cameron thanks so much for your time we'll see you out there in space all right see you there awesome thanks a lot You've been listening to Decrypted, Ars
0: Technica's podcast about all the television that we're obsessing about. So be here next week and we'll talk some more.